Today on The Black Goat, we talk about what the future of the field would look like if journals ceased to exist, and a letter about how to be successful while doing good work as an early career researcher. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. I'm Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullet and Samin Vizier. This is surprisingly the first time in two years this has happened, which is that, uh, you know, we, we record these episodes when we're able to schedule each other uh, with each other. And, and uh, we literally clicked, like, publish on our last episode while we're recording it. So I feel mm-hmm. like this is, like, in a weird way, even though this is, like, two weeks off, it feels, like, kind of live in some <laughs> sense. Like... I'm I'm gonna be like sitting here while we're recording the podcast, like with half an eye on our Twitter stream, being like, you know, what's going on? Is anyone listening? Somebody asked me recently. It's always funny to um, if we record live, and they just like looked like horrified at the prospect, and I was like, definitely we don't. But I also said, I mean, we cut extremely little, um, but I think it still makes a huge difference that we don't record live, which is that like. I think I would basically not talk if we were recorded live. I think I would just be so nervous all the time. I was going to say that I always try to remember not to like tweet something controversial or send an email that I'm anxiously waiting a response to right before we start recording because we often like I'm offline besides talking to you guys for two hours straight, which is a long time for me. (laughs) For you to not look at Twitter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I was listening, there's another podcast I listened to called Reply All, which is like a pretty big podcast, and, and they were doing a, they did a call-in show where, so it wasn't live, because it's a podcast, so they recorded it, but they but they had like this window where their listeners could call in and they would just like talk to them and respond. And I was sort of thinking, I was like, what what would happen if we did something like that? And then I thought... You know, what What would probably happen is, like, the first person would call in, and we'd talk for an hour and a half, <laughs> right. and then we'd be like, okay, I guess that's our episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, feel I feel like, like we're not... hosts is already a lot. Yeah. And, I know, we have, we have a I lot I also feel say. like we, one of our weaknesses of is graciously ending conversations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. we'd be like, okay, caller, we're going to end the conversation now. Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, we don't, uh, we're not good at the segue thing. No. Uh, no. Speaking of which. So I'm just going to launch into a new topic. <laughs> Speaking of which. <laughs> so I had an interesting thing happen that I was curious to chat with you guys about, which is I was a reviewer on a paper, and I don't think, I'm not going to reveal any information that's confidential, so I'm just going to be open. I was a reviewer on a paper for Psych Methods, and it was a meta science paper. Um, and I wrote my review and signed it. And then the editor uh, wrote to me and said, we'd like to change these things about your review. Um, You know, we're just letting you know, like basically kind of asking for my permission, but kind of also telling me. And specifically the things they they wanted to change was um, that I had said in certain parts of my review, I'd used the phrase as a non-quantitative psychologist or something very similar. Um, And this was because some aspects of the paper used more sophisticated quantitative methods Psych Methods is a journal that's often the audience is quantitative psychologists, but not exclusive, not always. In this case, the paper would have had a much broader audience. It was relevant to a lot of meta science um, people and stuff like that. And 
in some cases, in most of the cases, I was using it to make a positive point. So for example, like as a non-creative psychologist, I found the paper really easy to follow and understand and so on. And so she wanted to remove the phrase in some cases, but like in the case of like, I found the paper like really clear, um, she wanted me to remove the whole thing because it would be, because that was the non-quantitative psychologist part was crucial to that point. And um, so, yeah, I was a little bit curious at first. I was like, sure, fine, whatever. But then I slept on it. And the next day I was like, no, actually, for a number of reasons, I was Wait, not happy about that. There's something idea. I'm missing. Like, So do you know at this point what the reason is for why they want to remove it? Yeah. So the reason the editor gave was that um, it might make the authors take my review less seriously. Right. Okay. Which, so then I, Which I put maybe myself in the role of editor. Well, maybe they should, but if my points are valid, then the editor should enforce that they have to like address those points, right? Mm-hmm. And also, I'm not really sure... So, like, I've, you know, sometimes as editor, for example, for a social personality journal, sometimes I might request a reviewer who's a developmental psychologist or a clinical psychologist. And if they wrote in their review, like, as a non-social personality psychologist, blah, 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 I feel like I wouldn't email them and be like, hey, the author might take you less seriously because you're not a social personality psychologist. Like, right. it only works if there's a hierarchy of subfields. So th- I feel like implicit in that, although I understand you could argue that it's not, you don't need a hierarchy for that worry to be there yeah. because if it's... A journal for a specific subfield but I still think it would sound weird if it was any other subfield like if I told a developmental or clinical psychologist someone might not take you seriously if you out yourself as a non-social personality psychologist um, even for a social personality journal but I mean I guess I understand the concern I don't think it's crazy but I don't think the right way to deal with it is to ask the reviewer not to put that in also because I signed my review so they could easily google me and figure out that I'm not a quantitative psychologist and then thirdly because I signed my review the review will reflect on me and it's my style to say, like, this is where my expertise ends. Mm-hmm. So asking me to remove that changes how someone would evaluate me when they read that review. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, it's funny. I'm trying to remember where this was, but I can recall at some point in the past reviewing a paper and the instructions to the reviewers specifically saying, please don't comment on your qualifications or your blah, blah, blah. Huh. Um, and I don't know what the reason for that would have been. Like I said, I just I have this memory of seeing that somewhere in reviewer instructions. I mean, there is an interesting point that like, if in some ways they're supposed to be responding, I mean, you said they're supposed to be responding to the arguments and criticisms and claims in the review, not to who the reviewer is. So in some sense, there's kind of this tension here where like you could also alternatively, you could phrase it as like, um, I believe this manuscript will be very clear to people outside of mm-hmm. quantitative psychology. So you're not framing, you're yeah. not putting, you're not framing that as coming from your perspective, yeah. but you're still making the same substantive point. Yeah. Um, but I, and I feel like that, I feel like there's a really interesting issue, which is like how much should, should reviews be written as a series of criticisms and claims or should they be more openly acknowledged they're coming from a point of view? I mean, I tend to think that, like, because they are coming from yeah, a point right. of view, why not just write them mm-hmm. that way? But um, there's some sometimes even when, like, everyone understands that, like, enforcing a norm that you don't write it that way that requires you to make the claims stand on their own yeah. regardless of viewpoint. Yeah, that's could, a good point. But that doesn't sound like what the, the editor was after yeah, here. Yeah, but maybe, that, maybe it was. Like, maybe it would have been even better if I had framed it so that it didn't matter who the author of the review was, that the point could be made by anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to like, yeah, they should be evaluating the content of your review and should be 
disregarding your expertise. Like, I don't know how much I agree with that. Like, it's relevant whether or not you're a quantitative psychologist. And if you make claims that are, um, are useful or relevant, that should be, they should be able to evaluate that regardless of whether you, it just seems like hiding information is not like going to make their interpretation of the information clearer. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would agree with you that like, I would want to keep things like that in there because I often make statements like that in my reviews. Um, that not necessarily like I'm not this type of psychologist or whatever, but like I like I'm not an expert with this type of analysis, but I didn't like understand why you did it this way or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just seems yeah. like by removing that you are, I mean, you could be giving yourself, I mean, not you, but like the, the editor removing that could give you more credit than you deserve actually in your review. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I because I, I do write first person reviews a lot of the time and and I try to like, you know, it's it's like the, the almost cliche thing, like use I statements. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I, I try to say, like, I wasn't persuaded by this yeah. or I found this really compelling right. or I didn't understand. Like you were saying, I didn't understand this part of the analysis because I think then that that helps sort of reinforce what authors and editors should be doing anyway which is using the not necessarily taking the review at face value every time but using it as a signal so if someone says like if someone if someone is making an argument that's off base you you're supposed to take that as a signal that oh maybe the problem here isn't that their argument is right but that i wasn't clear enough in how i expressed it that's the reason they're confused right or whatever and so so there so i think i do think the the like removing the point of view can have yeah, it can have that effect of like, it forces you, or not forces, but it, it really channels you into writing in this more kind of authoritative sounding mm-hmm. language. Like, is it just like, an objective fact? Yeah, yeah, right. Right, right. Like, instead of saying, I found this really compelling, you say, this yeah. is compelling. That right, sounds right. much more kind of hoity toity. Right. Mm-hmm. I also thought that maybe if more authors, it's like methods get competent reviews from people who explicitly identify as non quantitative psychologists, that could help repair the like mm-hmm. <laughs> reputation that potentially the negative perception that quantitative psychologists have of non-quantitative psychologists when it comes to more technical papers or things like that mm-hmm. i mean that assumes that my review was helpful or valid but yeah yeah right yeah. i mean i i don't blame the editor I, I think they were in a tough spot and i could i couldn't completely understand where they're coming from and we had a little bit of back and forth and i can't remember what kind of compromise we landed on but um yeah, I thought it was an interesting scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that was like our first letter of the day. Yeah, I know. It was kind of me asking you guys. My but should, <laughs> should, we, should we do our This is the real letter. letter. Are you guys ready? The real letter? Yeah. Uh, Dear the Black Goat, it's kind of overwhelming to be in the beginning or middle of a PhD program and feel like the walls of psychological science or possibly academic science in general are falling down around you. It's especially hard feeling like it's impossible to predict what will be rewarded on the job market in a few years. On the one hand, it's been 50 years since Mill's warning about cuteness in research, and students are still being trained to be flashy and interesting. On the other hand, perhaps right now is truly a turning point. 
What advice would you give to students and other ECRs who just have a few years to prove themselves, but who want to focus on putting out really rigorous papers rather than racking up publications in top journals? What do the three of you uh, look for in selecting future colleagues? And finally, for those whose methods training leaves a lot to be desired, what are some favorite resources? Thank you, Anonymous. Um, this letter is from a little while ago, and I really like this letter because I think it articulates probably the most common concern of any of our listeners, which is like, just how do you survive in the current academic climate and also do really rigorous work? Um, that's certainly like the kind of question that I hear most from the graduate students that I talk to and even early career researchers, um, especially when it comes to like the replicability crisis and stuff like that. Or the credibility revolution, sorry. <laughs> I mean, one thing I would say, uh, one sentence this writer wrote is, uh, on the other hand, perhaps right now is truly a turning point. I know this is hard to defend, but I really, really think it's different this time. I yeah. think, you know, maybe not on a time scale that will help with this, with the current grad students, but on a longer time scale, I really think this revolution or whatever will have longer lasting more impact than meals writing in the past or other movements mm -hmm. in psychology yeah. i mean I, I i do feel like it's at a turning point i i you know um hiring committees are you know job ads are starting to mention open science not all of them obviously but some of them and like Oregon's has done this, and and according to our department head, he was at Cogdop like a year ago, which is the this conference of department chairs and mm -hmm. heads in psychology, uh, and like people had heard Oregon was doing this and were like in a positive way asking about it, and so like other departments are interested in doing this. Um, uh, so I mean, I do think things are starting to change. I also like. Um, I mean, let me turn the question around and say, like, should you be doing research that you don't think is serious or rigorous in order to get a job? Yeah, I was. And I think the answer is fuck no. Yeah, like, right. <laughs> I, I sort of I had a similar thought, which was that the ideal the idealistic answer that I would give to this question is just just do research the way that you think you should be doing research and do the kinds of work that you think are important um, and that's the only way you are going to end up in a job that values the kind of work that you do. But you can also still try to satisfy the things that you're going to be evaluated on, even if you don't share those values, as long as they don't go against your values. So sure, yeah. like if you can do research up to your own standards, but also maximize, you know, whether you publish in top journals, according to what search committees consider top journals and maximize the quantity of your publications, because you know that that matters on the job market mm -hmm. without compromising on the things you really care about which i know there's a trade-off i know that like doing things the way you want to do them probably means doing them slower and having less of a chance of getting into the top journals but sometimes there's there's things you can do that don't s compromise your values so for example using secondary data right you mm -hmm. might be able to find research questions that you care about that you can address rigorously with existing data and that might not disadvantage you at some of the quote-unquote top journals um so finding think ways like making neutral decisions that help meet those goals and don't and you're not against um in addition to the positive decisions that are important to you mm -hmm. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that this often gets framed as like this forced choice between be rigorous and ethical or get a job. And it's like, you can so much of, I mean, so much of how, like, how how you sell yourself for getting a job is not like a fixed rubric mm-hmm. that's out there, right? It's it's so much of it is about how you take whatever it is that you're doing and communicate to people um, the that it's rigorous and that it's important and all of that stuff. And then also, you know, Samin was saying, like, there's so many things that don't implicate this, right? Like, yeah, trying to get attention to your work. There's nothing wrong with trying to, you know, we had our... our what was it like our, our self-promotion episode a few episodes ago? Like there's nothing wrong with per se trying to get attention for your work. The reason when we talk about it being a problem, it's when you're, you're compromising other things, but it's like, there's plenty you can do to get attention to good, valid, rigorous research. Um, so like do that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, totally do that stuff. But like do work that you can stand behind and feel proud of because otherwise you're going to get a job doing shitty research and then your soul or, will be or eaten away. Or you might still not get a job and <laughs> or you still right or you still <laughs> might right 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 you still might not get it. Yeah, and and right. So either either you get a job doing shitty research and now you're locked into this you know, you you've dug yourself into this groove where you have to keep doing shitty research to like get tenure because that's what everyone thinks you do. Oh, mm-hmm. he's the person that does all yeah. the flashy shit and whatever. Um, or yeah, like you don't get a job anyway, which is like base rates um, mm-hmm. and, you know, or an academic job. And then you go get a job somewhere else and you make more money yeah. and you are happy with your life. And, and you wonder why you ever fell into that trap to begin uh-huh. with. Yeah, right. I mean, I think the point that you make about there being sort of like no rubric, um, I think it's always really tricky to try to even figure out what you need to do to get a job like what are departments going to reward you for or whatever and there are certain assumptions that you can make that are probably really well well established but there are there are other things that I think right now it's really tricky to figure out you know like what what a department is going to prefer are they going to prefer like a lot of publications or signs of you know you doing like work that's replicable and open access and etc Right. So yeah. it's I think it's dangerous to try to guess. And that's like one reason to, um, yeah, to be the kind of researcher that you want to be. And also by doing that, you like create an opportunity for that. Right. So you start to, I think, shape the kinds of decisions that people make, the more that there are people out there who are prioritizing these things. Um, but, yeah, the other thing that I think both of you have sort of mentioned is that, um, yeah, there are times when these two like success and rigor are at odds with each other but they're they're often not and I think more and more it's the case that like um signs of rigor are recognized and rewarded um like there are now you can get badges for these kinds of things that's like maybe at some journals it's starting to even look bad if you have zero badges um, you can submit a registered report to Nature, which is like, you know, about as prestigious as it gets. Um, but then also I think it's increasingly the case that you will be penalized for doing, um, to, for doing like non-rigorous things. Like, I think it's increasingly difficult to get away with like doing the kinds of research that we did 10 years ago, like p-hacking things and, you know, not pre-registering anything, making nothing open. I think that's harder and harder to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
I think there is a lot of, well, it's changing quickly, so it's hard to predict where it's going to go, but I think we know which direction things are changing in towards more pro-open science. And then there's a lot of heterogeneity across search committees and so on, so it's hard to predict for that reason. But I think there's one thing I would say I feel pretty confident in, at least for the next few years, that isn't going to change quickly, which is uh, caring about the specific journals that Mm -hmm. articles are published in, at least in social and personality psych, and I'm curious if you two agree. In social and personality psych, and R1 universities in the U.S., I would feel somewhat confident predicting that they the first pass at your CV will put a lot of weight on which journals you've published in. And the specific journals that are included in the like top group might vary from department mm-hmm. to department, although not a whole lot. So I think if you're if it doesn't go against your morals to try to submit to the journals that search committees are most likely to be impressed with when they're skimming all you know 120 applications, then that might be the last thing you should like be uh extremely hard line on if mm-hmm. again depending on your own morals and your own values and so on but pra- from a practical perspective i would say that's one place where there is probably still a huge cost to taking a very strong moral stand against the old system so like against the traditional prestige journals you wouldn't say numbers of publications yeah maybe both equally yeah but i think if someone had a bunch of only open access Journal. I mean, I'm using open access as a heuristic, but really what I mean is not top tier mm-hmm. um, publications. If, if they had a bunch of publications, but none of them were in the like journals that search committees consider the top 10 or so for that subdiscipline or top five, I don't, I think it would be very hard for an R1 job in the US at least. Yeah. And social personality psych, I think it'd be very hard to get looked at. Fair. So, I mean, I, I think I agree with you, but I just want to, I just want to sort of, raise a couple reasons why I might not be 100% confident of that. So I think that we don't have a lot of insight into how search committees are actually doing their job. Um, I think that from the outside, there are all these stereotypes of what you have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, my, my experience in search committees I've been on or close to is that those kind of things matter more at the early stage right. than the late stage. And but that also that they're not absolute, yeah. right? That that there are other so like in the first stage when there's 200 applications, people are looking for quick ways to cut, and skimming a CV is one way to do that. But there are other ways that things can jump out at somebody and and get you through that. Despite that, the other thing I think I would say is you know we don't have good comparisons of people who do equally strong work, but of the only thing that's different is they've made those deliberate choices to publish one place or the other. Um, so we don't really know for sure. And, and so again, I, I, I think I mostly land on like, you're like probably more or less agreeing with you, Samin. I just, I think, I feel like there's, when I talk to early career researchers, they have such a extreme polarized view sometimes of what they think things are like. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I think it's easy to, to take that too far. Right. And, and just in the same, in the same way that like, you know, saying like you can sell good work. I mean, I think there's some way that this is like being in the middle is almost worse than like if you if it was very clear that this was like a principled stand and this is your thing. Mm -hmm. I think in some ways that could be more persuasive than a sort of middling like, well, sometimes you can, you know, like, like I think someone might look at this and say like, oh, this is someone like, wow, their description of their work looks good. The, The abstracts look really exciting. 
Um, I'm going to take a closer look. Oh, and also like, you know, they have a section or research statement that says like principles and values as a scientist. Um, And Mm -hmm. and that caught my eye and it it gives me an explanation of why their CV looks the way it does. Mm -hmm. So I I would, again, I'm not saying like everybody should go out and do this, but I'm just, I want people, I, I find too many early career researchers aren't, they're, they're taking an extreme and uncritical view of what they think yeah. search committees are doing. I agree that I think we're often way too confident that we know what will predict getting a job or not. Um, and there's very few things I would be comfortable generalizing about search committees, even to just R1 social personality jobs in the U.S. But if there's anything, it would be that. But And even this, I think I could imagine it changing very quickly. I could imagine two or three years from now, search committees... N- weighing these heuristics a lot less and there's going to be exceptions there's going to be search committees that don't use these heuristics at all also if you yeah if you knew that you could get past that first stage of cutting then i think all these things matter a lot less if you make it to the next round where people are starting to read your articles and uh, look more closely at your work i think those heuristics matter a lot less um do you have anything to say about the question about favorite resources for people who don't have um, ideal methods training. That's like a whole nother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'll be our third letter of the day. <laughs> yeah. I guess maybe quickly Go I would sips. say like maybe, um, yeah, if this, if you're a graduate student, maybe you could find, um, other people to collaborate with aside from just your advisor. Um, especially if there's somebody in your department who like you think does good work. Um, and, and uh, like the OSF pages for the last three SIPS conferences. and I was going to say, yeah, SIPS, basically. SIPS um, and the affiliated information. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like the question is just for those whose methods training leaves a lot to be desired, what are some favorite resources? It feels like such a broad, like, question twitter are they (laughs) are they talking yeah but are are they talking about like general statistical and quantitative methods are they talking about some like something really specific you know it's like if you want to learn some really specific technique the answer might be go do a postdoc right and if you you know if you want to learn like you know more about statistical inference it might be go take daniel lockins's mooc you know it 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 it, it would be really hard yeah amps has a lot of tutorials yeah yeah Yeah. that's a good point too Amps, Sips, mm-hmm. all the cool stuff. Mm-hmm. The Black Goat All the stuff we have conflicts of interest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> all the things we're yeah, doing. Just, yeah. Come, come and roll at the University of Oregon and take my methods <laughs> yeah, <course>. right. <laughs> And tell the admissions office that's why you're here, so they'll give my department all your tuition money. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, cool. Well, thank you, Anonymous, for for I think a really good question uh, that that. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are, are wondering about. Um, yeah, and and if you are listening and you want to email us uh, with a, a letter, a query, a request for advice, or what have you, you can email us letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. Um, you can find us on Twitter. We're at blackgoatpod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash blackgoatpod. We're on Instagram, instagram.com slash blackgoatpod. And uh, you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you rate us on those services, it helps other people find us. And so if you want us to go away, don't rate us. Um, So for our main topic today, we wanted to talk about this was kind of like, 
I feel like we've talked about this a little bit before as a possible topic, and I don't. So it feels like it's been sort of percolating for a while. It feels like a, a little bit of a departure for us. We wanted to talk about what if journals didn't exist, or what if they went away? What would what would that be like? What's a, an alternative future, an alternative reality without journals? Um, so it's a, it's definitely a thought experiment. This isn't like we're not saying this is necessarily what should happen, although maybe we'll say some of that. I have to admit, when I was thinking about this last night before recording, and and this what popped into my head uh, was this. Are you, do you guys know the Dan McAdams uh, "What If There Was No God" study? No. So so he did this study. I, I'm probably like shaving down the details in my memory uh, to make it more entertaining for me. But, uh, um, you know, Dan McAdams is a personality psychologist. He does a lot of research on people's narratives, usually about reality, like their, their stories about actual reality. But he did this study where he asked people to write narratives about uh, religious people, to write narratives about what if you woke up tomorrow and there was no God. And just like saying, yeah, yeah, I know theologically this isn't how it works, but just like imagine that this were to happen. And, <laughs> and, and what I remember being the takeaway was that if you were religious and liberal, um, your what if there was no God narrative was like a world that was cold and empty and without meaning. And that if you were religious and conservative, mm-hmm. your what if there was no God narrative was like a world where people are like, it's unrestrained impulses. People are like killing and fucking and fucking the people they killed and like, you know, all this other stuff. <laughs> right. And so, I mean, I, I might be making that part up, but, uh, um, and that's what I do every I, day since I don't believe in God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, but there's, so I think there's this like, what, what made me think about it is there's this sense in which journals, like they do all these different things. And, and so to some extent, like how you answer, what if there were no journals, is kind of a reflection of what you think journals are for. Like, do they give you meaning or do they restrain your worst impulses or, you know, what Mm -hmm. else? Like, like what, what do journals do for your lives and how, how would that change if they went away? Yeah. That's a good point. It's a good way to think about it. I, I wonder if maybe like a good way to start the conversation is to maybe do that exercise or at least like sort of paint an approximate reality for, for what things would look like. Um, because I think, so, I mean, the first time I ever considered this idea um, was when I read the Scientific Utopia, the first paper in 2012. Um, and I had like, I had never considered that the possibility of eliminating journals before then. And actually the paper is not specifically about eliminating journals. It's about a very, very different publication environment that could still involve journals or not. Um, but I wouldn't have even really known what to picture before I had that image in my mind. And maybe you guys have slightly different images in my mind, but I, I imagine we're picturing something where people are um, uploading their articles onto some kind of like online repository instead of publishing them in journals. Those papers are unaffiliated with anything like resembling a journal. But there, I also imagine you guys are still picturing some kind of evaluation process where people are allowed to review these papers or comment on these papers. Perhaps this is an ongoing process. Um, so these papers aren't simply like, it's, it's not simply like a million papers out there with no information about their quality or about how other people feel about them. But there are these um, ratings, reviews, evaluations that are there as well. Um, and then possibly like 
you have some sort of idea in your mind about how open this is and how dynamic it is. So are these like, are these articles being revised continuously perhaps? And then like, is the review process continuous and things like that. So is that the kind of thing that you, you would also picture without journals? Yeah, pretty much. I think, yeah, I had a interesting reaction when I read the 2012 scientific utopia one part one paper, um, where, Back then, a lot of things about it made me really uncomfortable, and now only some things about it make uh-huh. me really uncomfortable, yeah. and I predict that I'll get over those things too. But for me, one thing I can't quite wrap my head around, and I think it's just like, just too novel for me, is like the continually updating paper. So like the fact that there's, you could just keep changing it forever based on feedback and so on. That makes me weirdly uncomfortable in a way that I know is not rational, but I'm like, but what if I want to cite something? I know there's version control, and I know... But I, I'm so bad at version control myself that it's hard for me to imagine a world where it doesn't get super confusing, like which version you were citing or what happens when the part you were citing it for goes away and, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so that part I still need to wrap my head around. And I just need to get uh, better examples of people who actually or systems that are good at version control and where it's not a problem to refer to something that has since been updated. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. There, I think it was a reply to one of, to, I think, I don't know if the, if the Scientific Utopia paper was a target article with replies, but I think it was in one of the replies that the uh, some authors published a response called Let's Publish Fewer Papers, mm-hmm. because I think they interpreted, and I don't know how explicitly the Scientific Utopia paper said this, but they interpreted it as encouraging people to publish more. And I think that's the separating publication from evaluation part, mm-hmm. that if we say publish and then evaluate, then, and I think this will, what I imagine happening is kind of like the conservative religious people's imagination of what would happen after if there was no god which is like this free-for-all yeah right immediate gratification of like lines on my cv oh my god i can get all of them (laughs) but i think eventually that would pass and then we would realize wait lines on my cv mean literally nothing like i could post you know a picture of my cat and put that as a line on my cv Mm -hmm. what really matters is getting evaluated positively and so then i think it might lead to people publishing fewer papers because it's not enough to get the hurdle of publication it's not enough to get past one set of peer reviews that you want the long-lasting positive reputation you know positive evaluation right i think like even if we wanted to get away from a system where some papers are seen as good and others are seen as not as good it would be impossible so i think no matter what kind of system we have there will still be things that um, distinguish like more impactful papers or more favorably reviewed papers from, um, yeah, from papers that sort of like get lost in the, um, in the masses of papers that people submit. So I think there will always be incentive to, to have the good papers, right? And that, that entails a shift from quantity to quality, I think. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is what I find hard about doing this as a thought exercise and so I'm I'm really glad we're doing it because I think yeah you know I find like I, I have to sort of think these through like there's there's a couple of things that are that sort of constrain what or, or shape what an article is currently and what a journal is currently and and it's hard to think through all the all the impacts and what would change right so one one thing that that has shaped what an article is currently is just the the possibilities and limitations of the physical medium of print right so so the idea of an article what an article is 
how long it should be, what information is and isn't in there, came about when, you know, communicating was expensive because we had to print things. And so, um, so we, so it was sort of developed within those constraints. Right. And so, so I think these, all these issues of, you know, I, I, I did this in my research methods, my undergrad research methods class, where I kind of talked about how, like, as a unit of knowledge about an experiment or a study or what have you, like the original conception of a journal article was it was largely self-contained. Like if you want to know about this experiment that happened, the journal article has everything you need to know. And and it's already starting to break where like now the journal article is connected to an OSF repository with the data and code and pre-registration. And it's connected to post-publication peer reviews and it's connected to other things. And so if you want to know everything you need to know about a study, to evaluate a study, to learn from a study, it's getting to be less the case that the article is a self-contained unit. Um, and, and so if you imagine abolishing journals, then there's th- these things like version control or is a paper even the right word to be using? Are we talking about like an interactive document with a, you know, things like Jupyter notebooks or R Markdown notebooks that, that compile with the data and, mm-hmm. and what have you mm-hmm. like? interactive things there's all kinds of things that technology affords so like the the sort of like the constraints the technological constraints are one thing that shapes what we currently have that could go away and then the other is all the things that cropped up around it as a consequence right so so like if journal articles were originally invented for scientists to communicate to other scientists they nevertheless took on all these other functions and meanings about like a system of professional evaluation, lines on a CV, et cetera. And that may not have been the intent, but that's the way things evolve, Mm -hmm. right? So just like journal impact factors were originally invented to help librarians decide what to subscribe to. And then they became this like bad proxy for, for quality or whatever. And, and the article, it may be a good proxy or bad proxy, but it's like, it's become this thing. And so if we reinvent, so right now our thoughts about what an article is are kind of like, because we connect it to that and we think, well, it needs to be a thing you can evaluate somebody professionally on. I, that may be with whatever replaces what we have now, that may still be the case. It probably still is in some general way, but like how much does that system get remade of like, how do you evaluate some a scientist's work and output and quality and all of that? Um, is it by lines on a CV? Does that remain a relevant concept or and I, I this is really hard for me because I, I I my inclination is to question that but I don't I can't say like oh obviously instead it would be this like I can't tell you what the alternative model is but it feels like that doesn't have to be the case yeah right? no I mean I guess to do what you just said that we couldn't do I mean <laughs> I would imagine that in a world without journals CVs would start to be like a set of links almost you know what I mean so Assuming that, like, these online repositories have some information about people's response to the article on them, right? So reviews or ratings or evaluations or something like that. Um, Then, yeah, if you're evaluating someone's CV, you're you're going to these links and you're seeing the article and you're seeing the reception of the article, Um, which I guess is lines on a CV that are maybe slightly more informative than instead of seeing like this paper, your first author, it's published in JPSP and that being the information that you take into account when you count that line. Instead, I imagine you're seeing 
similar things, but also the reception of the article rather than JPSP first author. Yeah. I think one question I have is how different would it be to say, instead of JPSP liked it, say it got this many five-star reviews or got five-star reviews from these people who are followed by... Yeah, exactly. Who are like thought leaders or whatever yeah <laughs> influencers right. things like that like i imagine that's kind of what would replace journals in some ways but i i think one problem i have with the current system is the concentration of power that i think editors-in-chief and mm-hmm. editors have a lot of power and my experience the more i get a taste of it is that it's way way too concentrated and the nice thing about a system where anyone can create their list of their favorite articles and then the people who are authors of those articles can brag about being on those lists as like a kind of metric of like the re- positive reception of their paper. It was that anyone could start that list, right? You don't have to be chosen as an editor to have your list or to have a Twitter um, account where you retweet papers you like or things like that. Um, uh, Plot it is an example of a system like that where people can just give a like thumbs up. Or I don't know exactly what they call it, but a, indicate that they like an article and so then that you can accrue likes or whatever the equivalent is mm-hmm. um and it, it it's uh, you're identified through your orchid id so it's not just that you got this many likes but you could also talk about who liked that people from this many different subdisciplines mm-hmm. have liked it or you know people who themselves their own work is highly uh, well received liked your paper or whatever mm-hmm. it gets a little bit more nuanced and there's a little there's more opportunity for diversity of different kinds of impact different kinds of recognition and so on some of which are still just as problematic or even potentially more problematic than the old type Mm -hmm. but then they would be they wouldn't be the only ones Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think that my you know i i I think i go a somewhat different direction which is i agree with you on the starting point that within the current system it is a problem that with how much concentration of power and prestige and gatekeeping by a small number of individuals. I think what, you know, what I what I worry about or what at least I think has to be considered for any alternative system is the possibility of that getting even worse, mm-hmm. right? So so I see all these possibilities where, you know, having new ways of organizing ourselves can mean opportunities for other voices. But, but you know, I, I also, like, I, I take a pretty dim view of the human propensity toward, like, hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And bo- both as a, like, a social phenomenon and as a cognitive phenomenon. In a world where there's so much information, you need some way to organize. And heuristic cues become more important where, you know, it's just, uh, like, there's so much information. And, and I would worry about, like, the possibility is that there's diverse people with different standards, but that the reality would be, like, it would just be a few really big, yeah. high-profile people or cliques or whatever driving things. And so I, I um, uh you know the the it's it's like what's the saying like democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others and like I, I worry a little bit like anarchism you know sounds great in yeah. in theory but uh, um, you know anarchism may not turn into the utopia so the, so then for me the question becomes like how do you create a world that that deliberately of tries to avoid those things that tries to structure in diversity and and multiple voices because i don't think just like 
post a preprint and let the market decide is yeah. is likely to do that. Yeah, yeah I think mm-hmm. we need some kind of moderation and some kind of organization. If at the most obvious reason is like trolling and bullying yeah. and harassment and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So there needs to be some way to stop that. And then I think, yeah, the one nice feature of peer review is that at least one pair of eyeballs will look at every paper. Yeah. Um, and so I think it would be nice if preprint servers were funded and then they could hire people to like recruit volunteers and then delegate papers to those volunteers to make sure that every manuscript gets at least one look over, mm-hmm. or ideally more than one person looking over it and writing a review or giving a rating or something like that. Because otherwise, yeah, the the only one like there might be jewels that just nobody ever reads because they just sit there and and the authors aren't famous and so on yeah yeah that's one thing that i wondered about was like if people are reviewing these papers what's the incentive to do so and like how are people how are reviewers paired with papers and things like that um Mm -hmm. and the first thought that i had was um i know like clinical psychologists have to do like um a certain number of hours of training I'm not going to be using the right terminology here but like I know that um like the the clinical psychologists in my department they they have to go to like a certain number of like talks or workshops or whatever each year to like keep their clinical certification and so I pictured you know maybe there's a system where um experimental psychologists have to review a certain number of papers each year um but then yeah you you still have the problem of like which papers get reviewed and are some people's papers getting way over reviewed and others you know not seeing any attention at all um and then yeah also the idea of like um which voices end up getting heard and which heuristics are people relying on like this is something that people talked about a little bit when it came to like these online forums like psych map and stuff like that like which voices are dominating and actually i mean unless there was some form of like regulation or incentive for everyone to participate or a way for decreasing over participation i mean you'd probably see a pretty similar distribution right like if we're talking about an online forum where people are like publicly commenting on papers i think that would be a similar group of people to those who are like publicly commenting on psychmap or psychmat or whatever um and we know that that's not representative and we know that there are some people who feel uncomfortable commenting in that format and but the flip side of what sanjay was saying about how we should be careful not to replace a system with an even worse system right right right. be careful not to assume that the problems that we are pretty sure would be there in the new system aren't there in the old yeah absolutely so like i would bet that there's a small group of people influencing a lot of decisions at the top journals, Definitely. especially when you get to like psycholo- psychology papers in PNAS or science yeah. or nature. My guess is that the number of people influencing those decisions is very, very small. Yeah, I agree. Smaller and less diverse than the group of people posting on PsychMap or PsychMap yep. or Twitter or whatever. Yeah, you have a good point. So it's a problem and we shouldn't tolerate it continuing to be a problem in a new system. But I think people often forget that because the old system's not transparent, we don't know that it's a problem, but... yeah. Uh, yeah. But that's even worse, what, that we can't even measure whether it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Well, and this, is, this is where I feel like the, the, what the old system can do, and I think maybe sometimes does, versus what it actually probably is mostly doing, right? So, and Because I think the old, there are some things that we could learn from how things are now that we could say maybe we could actually do these in a better way, right? So having, like, in theory, having a journal that's operated by or owned by a society 
could mean that a scientific society is a constituency that gives sort of good scientific direction and, and accountability to a journal for quality, right? Um, in principle, having uh, transparency about who are the editors and how are they selected, um, like as bad as the prestige stuff is, like at least you can go and look at a journal editorial board and you can see who's on there. And this has come up with journals, like there was, I think about a year ago, there was a journal um, I can't remember which journal now, but there was a journal that like the entire editorial board was men and like people saw that and, and they were able to hold the journal accountable and, and sort of make a response. And if you have these like informal networks going on, it's much harder to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so I think the question would be like, but I think in practice, we're not doing that as well as we could be with the current system. Or like another thing is whenever I review for an APA journal, they always ask, are you a member of an underrepresented group? Um, when I submit the thing, I have no idea what happens to that data, right? But in theory, somebody could be looking at how diverse are our reviewers and like, are we just asking kind of a demographically limited slice of people? Um, and they could, and maybe this is what goes on at API. I have no idea, right? But so, so there are things like that that we could say, okay, maybe, maybe those are working or maybe they're not working, but there are at least ways that people are trying. And so is there a way in a new system in a new ecosystem that we could try to do those things. And so that's where things like having, having instead of like post a preprint and let the world sort it out, like having scientific societies involved in these processes seems to me like probably a good idea yeah. because scientific societies can be structured horribly so that they're run by a few people, but they can be structured in a transparent and democratic way where they're accountable to their members. Yeah. And so if we did that, it might work or it might help. And as you've um, said many times, yeah. if you want to be inclusive, you have to intentionally create a system that is. It's not going to happen mm-hmm. not, right. know, by default. And so, yeah. <laughs> Inclusion doesn't happen. It's never in history happened uh, spontaneously. Yeah, right, right. But uh, um, yeah, with when it comes to systems of power, at least. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I... I I think, you know, to me, one like middle vision. So, you know, I kind of set this up as like, we have to radically rethink what is an article and, you know, how do we evaluate? But if we don't go that far, if we, but like a middle vision that I think is to me really intriguing is the idea of overlay journals. Um, you know, this idea that like pre- posting a preprint, anybody can do it. There's no, you know, or there's very minimal kind of quality control, whatever. And so how do you get peer review involved? How do you get people to look at something? How do you get some kind of an assessment of quality? How do you get feedback? All these other things. So the concept of an overlay journal where the journal doesn't host the article, the article exists on a preprint server, but what the journal does is it provides peer review and sort of, you know, signaling and and that sort of thing. To me is really a kind of intriguing possibility i'm kind of surprised i know there are overlay journals in other fields like in math and physics um i'm kind of surprised i haven't seen in at least in areas of psychology that are close I mean, to what i do i haven't seen a lot of psychology is basically that right yeah okay yeah no that's true yeah i think it's pretty close. yeah or at least they're they're adopting some concepts from that yeah i don't because they publish all sub- oh. submissions are published upon submission so okay. basically they're published as preprints and then whether they're rejected or accepted, they still exist as a preprint. So in a way, okay. the acceptance is not, uh, det- it doesn't determine publication. It's just overlaid on top of the publication that happens at submission. 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think I think they're going to start popping up. I, you know, as soon as I don't have an official editor role anymore, I plan to start doing something with some group that wants to do something like that because I enjoy it's my favorite part of the job is thinking critically about papers and I enjoy that more than doing my own research sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would like to continue doing that in some capacity. Yeah. In your um, utopian versions of this world, would would you guys prefer that there be no such thing as anonymous reviews, or do you think it would be better for there to still be ways to provide anonymous reviews? I would prefer that there would still be ways to provide anonymous reviews. I think there are a lot of people who have a lot of good things to contribute who justifiably wouldn't if they had to be identified. Yeah, I think I feel that way too. Mike Frank had a really good... Twitter thread, which is last night in recording time. Mm-hmm. So for people listening, this will be like a week and a day ago or more. Um, but he was he was kind of like suggesting taking a sort of ethical, like an ethics-based approach to how you evaluate uh, um, risks and benefits and who are the stakeholders that bear each. Um, and he's talking about different open science practices and how, so for example, like p-hacking, the who does it benefit is the researcher who does it who bears the costs is other researchers or affected populations so like by an ethical analysis it's like you're distributing benefits to some people and costs to others right and 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 so that's like a, a fairly clear example and and i think his approach okay. to talking it was not okay right and so so but i think he was like applying this to this concept of open peer review and i think that's where open peer review raises more of these kinds of like yeah, that the people that bear the costs are going to be like early career researchers or people who are in a vulnerable kind of position or career stage or what have you, um, and who ben- and they're not necessarily the ones that are benefiting from providing open peer reviews necessarily. And so the the issue is that if you want to design an ethical system of open peer review, you have to make sure that the people that are bearing the costs are also bearing the benefits either by mitigating the costs or by increasing the benefits. And I, I really like that way of thinking about it. Cause I, I agree. Like, I think um, like I've started signing all my reviews cause I'm just like, fuck it. I'm nobody. Nothing matters anymore. I'm a full professor. Nobody. I mean, I've started like calling my university president out on Twitter for stuff that I don't like. And, you know, cause I'm just like, you know, fuck it. I, you know, like I, I'm the most secure person in the world. If I don't do this, I'm a dipshit. But, um, but like, that's incredible, like job security and this status that other people don't have. And so I don't expect other people, like when I talk to graduate students and other people and they're like, should I sign my reviews? I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. If you want to, sure. But I, I don't think you, I don't, don't take away from me that I think you should be right. doing this. Same like, me, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I really think there's plenty of really good reasons not to sign your review, and I think we'd miss out on a lot of good feedback if we only allowed reviews that were signed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Can I... Um, but I, I think, yeah. Oh, go I ahead. have a yeah. one-sentence non-sequitur. I recently reviewed a paper, <laughs> and either I forgot to sign my review or the signature got taken off, but the other review was also really, well, was really consistent with mine, and I'm dying to know who it was. So if you were the other reviewer... On a perspectives paper, I'm reviewer two. If you're reviewer one, email me. I want to know who you are because I really liked your review. <laughs> <laughs> Is this so loud? <laughs> Why not? I didn't. I didn't reveal any information about the paper. No, that's true. 
and I only revealed my identity if if they unless this person I just really meant like using our podcast time for your own personal (laughs) agenda (laughs) well we're talking about signed reviews this is the downside of not signing your review because now I want to be like in touch with the other reviewer and neither of us can know who the other is since our signatures weren't on there Mm. But like, what if what if this is a trap? I mean, what oh, if you yeah, right. like, thought true. the person was like a total like off well, base. Well, given that and, we and said almost literally the same thing in our reviews, that would be shocking. <laughs> it would be funny if it's someone that I don't like for yeah. other reasons, and then like, <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm hoping. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, back to okay. So that's one meaning of open review. But I actually did a Twitter poll this morning asking what people think open review means because the other meaning is um, publishing the content of the reviews. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the responses to Mike Frank's Twitter thread, I saw people, I think, confusing the two meanings of open review. And I, I got from Mike Frank's thread that I think he's more in favor of po- publishing the content of the reviews and more unsure about the signing re- requiring reviews to be identified. Um, but I think publishing the content of reviews, I think that's going to happen. I think that's coming more and more journals are doing it the problem is i think nick brown has pointed out on twitter a few times is that right now we only do it even the journals that do it do it for papers that are accepted and some of them make it optional some of them make it mandatory but that means by definition on average they got much more positive reviews than the typical paper so we're still not seeing the critical reviews which would arguably be the most helpful so a paper gets rejected from this journal ends up published somewhere else we don't get to see the reviews from the journal that it got rejected from, which might have really, really useful content for readers. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that could change, except by, yeah, like this utopia where there aren't journals and it's just posted as a preprint and all the reviews are public comments on that preprint or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would be cool, though, to be able to see what other reviewers thought, including when the final decision is not to publish it or whatever the equivalent is in this post journal world Mm -hmm. yeah and i think i think that's all that's like a really good point that you know we talk about like how is the current forum constrained but like there's also like a lot of a lot of things that people want to do about increasing openness and transparency would be like the complexities come from trying to marry those to the current system Mm -hmm. right so like how do you get open review this sort of like making all reviews visible to work within the way journals work now and and that's actually, like you said, that's an easier problem to solve if we didn't have journals providing essentially a censored subset of, mm-hmm. censored in the not seeing everything in a biased way, not in the government control way, mm-hmm. but like a censored subset of what's sent to them. And so then how do you do open peer review on a like post-filtered yeah. whatever? Yeah. I mean, I think another, you mentioned earlier versioning, Samin. I think it would be interesting to talk a little bit about versioning because yeah, I think that is something that my intuitions about that, when they're based on how articles work now, I have the same kind of questions you do, Samin, about like when you cite something, how do you know what like what that means? Because the thing citing to you know, I think about like you go to a website and it's got links and the links are broken and that's like this is now the scientific yeah. version of that, right? Yeah. Like the links are broken or it's now to a totally different page or whatever. Um and yeah, I don't know, like what, you know, but I think about how like in other, f- other forms that like things evolve, like I, you know, when I was thinking about versioning when we we're getting ready for this episode and I was thinking about like in music, right, we, you have like 
the the song that you download or that you get on a CD or an album or whatever. But to a lot of musicians, their music is like, it's never ending. It's always changing. It's always under revision. You go see them live. I mean, some it's not, right? Like some pop artists always play the recorded version. But like some musicians, you go see them five or ten years and they play the song live and they've orchestrated it differently and they've changed the lyrics and they've done all these other things. To the musician, the the music is like, it's a living, breathing thing. Yeah. And articles are a bit like that in the sense that like, I mean, maybe I did a study and I'm done with the study and so the data are the data, but my thinking about it, my conclusions of it, how I would analyze that, there's no reason that that can't evolve over time. And, and when I think in my head, articles that I published 5, 10, 15 years ago, most of them my thinking about, like if, I, if you told me I had to write an article about the exact same data, I might write a very yeah. different article now. But how do you so, distinguish between yeah. versions that just fix typos and versions that make substantive changes? That's what I don't get. Yeah. Like, Version point one versus oh, 1.0. Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. That's a really yeah. good question. Yeah, I almost yeah. like I almost wonder about the opposite too. So right now, I think I mean I think it's ambiguous when a paper is done, right? But the system that we have right now, there's like a carrot at the end of the process, right? Or at what is currently the end of the process, which is like you get feedback, you get you get asked to make all these changes, or these changes are suggested to you, and it's like you don't you can't be published unless you do them. So you have this really big incentive to do them. But I'm wondering about like this system where like you've published something and now people are giving you feedback and stuff like that. Like, are people going to change things? And what's the incentive to change things? Like, sure, you know, you could, a paper could be this like yeah, maybe constantly evolving process. there was a way process, for a but... reviewer, for the person who wrote the comment to mark it as resolved. And so then like until it's marked as resolved, it keeps getting lots of views. It like, it gets moved, bumped up to the top. Everyone's seeing this. Oh my god, this sounds like this flaw. such a stressful system. I'm just like yeah. picturing like getting a notification on my phone that like somebody has like made a comment on my article <laughs> and I want to go address I'm it. I'm sure before Wikipedia existed, if you had tried to describe it to me, I would have been like, "That sounds impossible and so stressful." But there are way smarter people than us who could make this happen. Right. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I think to the. I think there. I think there's like the infrastructure for all this yeah. exists, right? There, and there are examples like Wikipedia or GitHub or whatever. I mean, I think the the issue for me is like in practice, like how do you actually get this done? How do you manage the issue of like when I say, oh, do you know, you know, Vizier 2027 and Alexa says, oh, yeah, I know Vizier 2027 and, and we're having a conversation and it turns out we're talking about mm-hmm. different versions and we, you know, like we're, we're like memorize uh, DOIs now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like how, you know, and so I don't know, does that just mean like you only do infrequent large revisions so that um, you're not constantly fiddling with little things that are confusing? Does that mean that we consider them different publications like, you know, Vizier 2027 2.0 or, you know, and we have to refer to it that way. Like, yeah, that's a good question. Because to me, the, the sort of like Real social Real final, cognitive... very much last yeah, one, exactly. Vizier. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> right. It's going gonna, it's gonna to look like my, yeah. my directory before I send a paper yeah. in all the titles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> Someone, yeah, yeah someone will figure it out. Enough. Yeah. It'll happen someday. What, okay, yeah, so let's make a decided, prediction yeah. about what year this is going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> when will all journals be eliminated? Or be like overlay journals type thing. Mm-hmm. 
when will pub- well to me the critical thing is when publication gets separated from evaluation but that's not the only bright line but i think that's one big one mm-hmm. yeah i mean it doesn't make sense to to pick a year i guess because that'll be a gradual process right that has already started right right yeah yeah if i, I mean if we're shifting from what if mode to prediction mode if I my best guess would be, you know, it's like I'm gonna have a record player. I still listen to vinyl. It hasn't gone away. It's just become this like different thing that occupies a different niche. And I think like traditional journals will be like that, right? Like I don't think they're ever gonna totally go away. <laughs> they may be like not the most common thing they do. They may become like a thing that academic hipsters yeah, I was do just gonna or say whatever. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, I, I have a feeling like these problems will get solved by other things cropping up alongside them and traditional journals will sort of become one of several ways that we communicate. If I had to guess, they're not in my lifetime going to completely go away, but who knows? But if I was running a scientific society that currently gets a large chunk of its income from a subscription journal, I would be starting right now to try to very quickly find, figure out how we're going to financially survive. Yes. Without the subscription journal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, words of advice. <laughs> I don't know what the answer to that is. I think it's a big problem because they do those. That income subsidizes a lot of really good stuff, but it's not a good source of income. But yeah. Anyway, that's a whole other issue. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, should we? Uh, are we? Should we wrap it up? Sure. Yep. All right. Uh, well, thank you everybody for listening to the Black Goat, and we'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.